roughly 500 years before the birth of Christ Jesus, the Lord spoke through the prophet Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. From the river to the ends of the earth. Because of this and other Old Testament prophecies, the Jews were expecting a king. The Jews were expecting a king who would deliver them from their oppressors, cutting off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, cutting off the battle bow. That is, these things that were set against Jerusalem. The promise was that those things would be cut off. And so the Jews understood that to mean that a king would come who would deliver them from their oppressors. The Jews were expecting a king whose dominion would be from sea to sea. And they were expecting this king to arrive riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the years went by. The decades went by. The generations went by. Even grandchildren failed to see the king that their grandparents had been waiting for. And then, Jesus shows up on the scene. In this section of Scripture that we're looking at today, Luke 19, 28-40, Jesus is making a clear claim to be that king. The king that the Jews had been waiting for. I want to gradually focus in on verses 37 to 40, and then especially on Jesus' statement in verse 40. I tell you that if these, my disciples, were silent, the very stones would cry out. And here's the main idea that I want you to take away from today, drawn specifically from Luke chapter 19 and verse 40. The glory of Jesus is ultimately irrepressible. The glory of Jesus is ultimately irrepressible. Let's define terms for clarity's sake. Glory is weight and importance, majesty and magnificence. And to repress or to suppress is to check by pressure, to put down by force, to restrain or inhibit to keep from public knowledge, to exclude from consciousness. That's what it means to repress or to suppress. With these definitions in mind, let me say it again. The glory, the majesty, the magnificence, the weight, the importance of Jesus is ultimately irrepressible. You cannot check it by pressure. You cannot put it down by force. 
You cannot restrain or inhibit the glory of Jesus. You cannot forever ultimately exclude the glory of Jesus from public knowledge. You cannot ultimately or forever exclude the glory of Jesus from consciousness. Jesus is weighty and important. Jesus is majestic and magnificent. And as a Christian, you're probably feeling an amen welling up in your heart as we think about these things. But even if you're not a Christian, you cannot ignore the glory of Jesus forever. Even you can't keep it down forever. Even as a non-Christian hearing about the glory of Christ, even you cannot tell yourself otherwise forever. Even you as a non-Christian cannot indefinitely exclude the glory of Jesus from your consciousness. You will one day see, you will one day see and acknowledge that Jesus is in fact glorious. The glory of Jesus is not ultimately capable of being suppressed or repressed. That's the big idea of today's message, but don't just take my word for it. Let's go now and see it in Scripture. We'll look at three things in order to drive home this point. The first is the glory of Jesus revealed in Luke's Gospel. The second is the blindness of the Pharisees in Luke 19. And the third thing is Jesus' statement in verse 40, that if these, His disciples, were silent, the very stones would cry out. So let's begin with the glory of Jesus as revealed in Luke's Gospel. I'm just going to do a little survey here. We'll look at a couple little sections of Luke's Gospel. It begins in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, like this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, it seemed good to me also to write an orderly account for you. When something is pretty ordinary or underwhelming, we say that it's nothing to write home about. In contrast, right from the beginning of Luke's Gospel, Jesus is presented as someone worth writing home about. Luke acknowledges, in fact, that many have already written about Jesus. And yet Luke thinks that it's still worthwhile to write more about Jesus. Many have already undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. It seemed good to me also to write. We quickly find out why Luke is so eager to write about Jesus as we read on in Luke's Gospel about the extraordinary circumstances surrounding His birth. Angels announce Jesus' birth to His mother and father. As we sang this morning, hark! The herald angels sing. Angels announce Jesus' birth to His mother and father and to the shepherds on a nearby hillside. God Himself impregnates Mary, Jesus' mother, such that Jesus is both the Son of Man and the Son of God. A star in the sky makes a special appearance to announce Jesus' birth. An angel announces, an angel appears, pardon me, to a relative of Jesus' mother. And God miraculously allows her to conceive in old age. 
and the child born miraculously to this relative, something like a cousin to Jesus, was to spend his whole life, his life's purpose, was to prepare people to understand who Jesus himself was. Jesus' birth certainly was worth writing home about. But not only was Jesus' birth worth writing home about, Jesus was an astonishing child. He showed great interest to be among the teachers in the temple. And He interacted with them over God's Word and amazed them with His understanding and with His answers. And as He grew, the favor of God was upon Him. And He entered into public itinerant ministry, teaching and healing for a few years prior to our section of Luke's Gospel here in chapter 19. During these years, Jesus cast out demons. Jesus healed the sick including lepers and quadriplegics. And Jesus even raised the dead. These miracles become fodder for the crowd's praise in Luke 19, 37. And Luke tells us, in addition to all these things, that Jesus is a descendant of both Abraham and David. And in doing so, Luke is helping us to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises made to both Abraham and David, respectively. So with all of these miraculous aspects of Jesus' life, who could doubt that He was the King that everyone had been waiting for? In John 7.31, some of the people who had been around Jesus asked the same question rhetorically. When the Christ, that is the anointed King, comes... Will He do more miracles than this man has done? Can you imagine being there? Seeing Jesus heal a leprous man? Watching His skin be restored in front of your very very eyes? Seeing worn off body parts restored to the man? Can you imagine seeing Jesus, seeing Jesus raise a young girl from the dead? Can you imagine listening to Him teach and hearing from His own mouth the Sermon on the Mount? Many of the parables that so many of us have heard so many times straight from His mouth. Hearing Jesus tell us about the prodigal son coming home and seeing the father run to the end of the driveway. Hearing Jesus tell about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Hearing that this man rather than the other went down to his house justified. Hearing these things straight from the mouth of Jesus. Hearing Him teach, not as the scribes, but as one who has authority. Can you imagine? This is the portrait that Luke paints of Jesus Christ. And we've just begun to see the glory of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Because all of this is preliminary. All of this is contextual for Jesus' primary work, which we're coming to today. As impressive and wonderful as these things are, there's greater glory to see in the Gospel of Luke. Let's consider now the more immediate context 
Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. One of the most outstanding, pardon me, not outstanding, astounding verses in Luke is chapter 9 and verse 51. This is one of the most outstanding, uh, pardon me, astounding verses in Luke, in the whole gospel. Listen to it. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. When the days drew near for Him to be taken up, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. What's so astounding about that, you might ask? Well, when you understand what He was going to Jerusalem to do, it becomes incredibly astounding. Why would Jesus make up His mind firmly? Resolutely determine. Set His face. That's what it means. To go to Jerusalem to die. To die. The one who evidently had power over death, raising the dead on more than one occasion, now goes to lay down His life. And not only goes, but goes resolutely. Sets His face to go and lay down His life. Look at Luke 19 now, and verse 28. And when He had said these things, He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. He's the leader of the company. He went on ahead. Commenting on this verse, Matthew Henry notes that in going on ahead... Jesus was the foremost of the company. As if He longed to be upon the spot. Longed to engage. To take the field and to enter upon action. Jesus is not only going to Jerusalem. He's going on ahead of His disciples to Jerusalem. Leading His disciples to Jerusalem. Alexander McLaren strikes a similar note. What concentrated determination... And almost eagerness impelled his firm and swift steps up the steep, weary road. And going to Jerusalem, Jesus was going to take his throne. He knew it. And he wanted everyone else to know it. That's why he came in on a donkey. He wanted the message to be clear. I am the king prophesied by Zechariah. I am the king you have been waiting for. I shall have dominion from sea to sea. I shall establish peace for my people. Jesus was going with firm and swift steps, with concentrated determination, the foremost of the company, because He was going to take His throne. The manner in which He came in was chosen in order to make it clear that He was going to take His throne. But His ascension to His throne was different than we might have expected it to be. And in fact, His throne, was, his throne itself was different than we might have expected it to be. 
both His ascension to the throne and the throne itself were different, not in a bad way, but in a good way, a very good way from what we might have expected it to be. Both His ascension to His throne and the throne itself were far more glorious than we expected it to be. We might have expected Jesus to conquer the enemies of God's people known as the Romans, to cut off the war horse and the battle bow, and to ascend to a physical throne somewhere in Jerusalem and reign for the rest of His life, perhaps another 40 or 50 years, to be a political Messiah. It seems that's the way many people in the crowd expected throughout Luke's Gospel. And even here in chapter 19, it seems that that's what they deduced from Jesus' arrival on a donkey. That this was the crowd's expectation is evident from the fact that the masses ended up disappointed with Jesus when He didn't attempt to overthrow the Romans and set up a physical throne in Jerusalem. What Jesus came to do was not to cut off the fruit of sin, one nation oppressing another, but Jesus came to strike at the root, to overthrow not some particular manifestations of sin, but to overthrow sin itself. To overthrow not sinners, whether Roman or Jewish or whatever, but sin itself. Jesus was not coming to Jerusalem in order to address the mere symptoms of the problems plaguing God's people. Hunger, poverty, disease... Jesus was coming to Jerusalem to deal with the root cause of the problems of God's people. Sin itself. And Jesus was going to do that by His death. Jesus set His face toward Jerusalem in order to die. The one who gave life now goes to die. The one who gave so much joy to so many throughout His earthly ministry, now goes to carry our sorrows. The one who had never sinned, now goes to be wounded for our transgressions, to be bruised for our iniquities, to be numbered with the transgressors, to have His grave made with the wicked. This is what is happening as Jesus enters Jerusalem. He is on His way to die for us. In the unfolding storyline of Luke's Gospel, we see the glory of Jesus more and more clearly as Jesus moves toward the cross. And then we see the glory of Jesus most clearly as He actually hangs upon the cross. As the God-man dies as a substitute for sinners. He lived a life of perfect righteousness on behalf of unrighteous sinners. And then He who knew no sin took the sin of sinful men and women upon Himself to bear our punishment in our place on that dreadful tree. The glory of God is on full display at the cross. 
Consider specifically the display of God's holiness and His love at the cross. God's holiness is on full display where we see that God will simply not look the other way at sin. God will not simply forbear with or tolerate sin. If God is to reconcile sinners to Himself, He must do so in a way that is consistent with His holy nature. And so God the Father punishes God the Son, pouring out His wrath upon Him on the cross for the sins of the people to whom He has been designated as a substitute. And God's love is exhibited openly at the cross where we see that God will not shrink Though this will be the cost, the death of His own Son, His love is exhibited at the cross where we see that He will not shrink from paying such a cost. What kind of God is this? Indeed, as we so often sing, amazing love. How can it be that God will not shrink from paying such a cost? to reconcile sinners to Himself. God the Father is so determined to save otherwise hell-bound sinners that He will not even spare His own Son. And Jesus the Son is so determined to save otherwise hell-bound sinners that He sets His face to go to Jerusalem. And then He goes on ahead of the company, leading His disciples there. With God the Spirit active and involved throughout the redemptive act, in the planning, in the execution of it, in the application of it, what we see is that our triune God is full of love and mercy. Full of love and mercy. Going all the way to the cross for us. So back to Luke 19, 28-30. This is what's happening. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem to do battle with our ultimate enemies. Sin. And correspondingly, death. Jesus is going to bear our our sins in His person, suffering the punishment that we deserved, drinking the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs. And He is going then to ascend to His throne and rule over the people that He has rescued and the territory that He has claimed. And He's not going reluctantly, but openly, manfully, as Alexander McLaren said, almost eagerly, he is, as, as Matthew Henry said, longing to engage, to take the field and to enter upon action. What a king. The Jews simply wanted someone who would preserve himself and them from Roman influence. Someone who would give them a little reprieve from Roman rule. Instead, here comes a king who will not preserve himself at all, but spend himself entirely for their sakes. To give them not a temporary reprieve, but an eternal hope. The chance to be free from their oppressors forever. To be reconciled to God. 
to be reconciled to fellow members of God's family and to live with the hope of vindication and justice and peace forever in the kingdom of God. So in the sense just described, the multitude of disciples didn't understand who Jesus was. There was a certain amount of blindness. It's not explicit in this text, but it's clear from the rest of the gospel accounts that they were expecting merely an earthly king. And the unbelieving crowds were obviously also expecting a merely earthly king since they turned on Jesus so quickly when they realized He wouldn't be the political Savior they so desired. And even if even the disciples didn't have exactly the right idea about who Jesus would be, what kind of king He would be, the Pharisees certainly did not. At least the disciples knew He was some kind of king. In contrast, the Pharisees in Luke 19 obviously didn't understand who Jesus was at all. Let's consider this blindness further. Look at verse 38. The crowds were saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. The multitude of the disciples have at least the right general idea. They see this as a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. Behold, your King is coming to you. And so they praise. They use the words of Psalm 118, which was, as as the commentator Joel Green tells us, used in pre-exilic Israel as a hymn of royal entry on occasion of an annual ritual of re-enthronement. The people certainly knew that some kind of king is coming into Jerusalem. And so they praise, Blessed is the king that comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They cut down palm branches and throw the leaves on the ground in front of Jesus' donkey along with their own clothes so that even the donkey that the Lord rode on would not have to lower itself to touch the ground. This is certainly at least, at least what the disciples should have done. In other words, they shouldn't have done less. Who could fault them for such a display of adoration and homage in view of the glory of the king who was entering the city. As we have discussed already, they did not properly understand who Jesus was. They did not fully grasp the nature and the significance of his kingship. But at least they recognized that they were in the presence of royalty and responded accordingly the best that they knew how. So the crowd wasn't wrong in that regard. However, in contrast, the Pharisees say, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. First, note the title with which they address Jesus. Teacher. This might sound pious and reverent at first until we realize that this is the title that is used throughout the Gospels when people who haven't yet made up their mind about Jesus address Jesus. When people who are wavering and not exactly sure what to make of Jesus address Jesus, they call Him Teacher. So, It's a term used by those who have not yet come to love and trust Jesus. It's a bit like sir. It would connote genuine respect in certain cases, but other times it's just a polite way to address a stranger. Teacher is too weak a title to address the king of kings. 
just as sir would be too weak. This address shows that the Pharisees don't yet know who Jesus is. And second, another evidence that the Pharisees don't yet know who Jesus is, is that they imply that the disciples should not be praising Jesus. The only reason Jesus would rebuke them is if they, if they were out of line. But given the portrait that Luke paints of Christ Jesus, who could be more worthy of praise? Who could be more worthy of praise than the prophesied, angelically announced, astronomically signified, virgin-born Son of God, the long-expected King, come to love, heal, teach, and yes, even die in love for sinners, for our redemption. If we ought not to praise Him, then who should we praise? The Pharisees were wrong to withhold praise from Jesus. And they were wrong to mistakenly assume that others shouldn't praise Jesus either. But even as we condemn the Pharisees, shouldn't we take a look in the mirror? What about us? What about you? Do you see the glory of Jesus? Do you see Him as worthy of praise? Do you actually praise? Because it's one thing to recognize that in the abstract that He is worthy of praise and yet not give Him the praise that He is due. So do you not only recognize that He is worthy of praise, but do you actually praise? Do you celebrate it when Jesus is praised? Or do you wish people would tone it down? When people get a little bit excited and a little bit exuberant in praise, do you feel like this is how it should be? People are praising our glorious King. Or do you feel like this is getting a little bit too exuberant? We need to be a little bit more restrained. If you were there the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, would you have been among those spreading their own clothes along the path of the animal, crying out in praise? Or would you have been among those who found the whole scene a little bit distasteful or a little bit excessive? Teacher, rebuke your disciples. This is getting a little carried away. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were all once blind to the glory of Christ. Ephesians 2 says it like this, we were dead in trespasses and sins, even like others, even as others, or even as, or as the ESV translates it, like the rest of mankind. <coughs> it's not just some people like the Pharisees who were dead in trespasses and sins. The Pharisees are like the rest of mankind. And in this natural state, before we are given that new birth, before we are born again, in that natural state, we neither perceive nor even have the ability to perceive the glory of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And finally, as we read a little bit earlier in the service, 
The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This was once all of us. We were all once ungodly and unrighteous. We all once suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. We were all once blinded by the God of this world. We were all once dead in our trespasses and sins. We were all once natural men and women who did not nor were able to understand the things of God. Here's an important question for you to think about. Are you still, are you still blind to the glory of Jesus? Perhaps you call yourself a Christian and yet you don't have a glorious vision of Christ. Why not? Sometimes our perception of Jesus' glory ebbs and flows. His glory doesn't change. He is glorious. But sometimes our perception of it ebbs and flows. Just as our perception of the brightness of the sun can ebb and flow because of other various factors. Whether there are clouds in front, whether we're indoors or outdoors, the sun is always just as bright but our perception of it can differ. And so it is with the glory of Christ. So you may simply be in a season of low tide, as it were, and the tide will come back in. Perhaps your affections for Christ have simply ebbed temporarily. But perhaps if you don't see the glory of Christ and you've never really perceived the glory of Christ, you ought to think about Are you still dead in your trespasses and sins? Are you still blinded by the God of this world such that you still can't see the glory of Jesus? Are you still a natural man or woman unable to receive the things of God? Are you still suppressing the truth about Jesus in your unrighteousness? If this is you and you're seeing your own Blindness for the first time today, that's a mercy in itself. Cry out to God to save you from your sins. And put your trust in Jesus, this glorious King. And then keep your eyes open to His glory. Turn away from the worship of anyone or anything else. And live a life of praise toward Jesus. On the other hand, if you already love to praise Jesus, if you already see His glory and respond rightly, you ought not to be smug or proud toward those who don't see His glory yet. How do you think you came to see the glory of Christ in the first place? 2 Corinthians 4.6 gives us the answer. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Or elsewhere again, 1 Corinthians 4-7, what do you have that you did not receive? Or straight from Jesus' mouth as He speaks to Peter upon the confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus says to him, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So whatever the case, whether we are already Christians or not yet Christians, we would do well to think about this fundamental truth and to give thought to our lives in view of this fundamental truth. Jesus is glorious and humanity has a blindness problem. So are we blind 
Do we see? Do we see as we ought? These are the types of questions that we should consider and we should all aim for a clearer view of Christ's glory. We should all aim to perceive more accurately just how glorious the incarnate, crucified, and resurrected Son of God is. We should all aim to love, to respond with love and affection to this King who laid down His life for the sake of His people, who took up His life again, and who shall rule and reign forever. forever. We need to fan into flame the embers that may be cooling in our hearts in view of the glory of Christ and then give Him the worship that He deserves. Alexander McLaren said, high-wrought emotion is a poor substitute for steady conviction. In other words, it's not just about working ourselves up in hype. High-wrought emotion is a poor substitute for steady conviction. But Alexander McLaren goes on to say, but cool, unemotional recognition of Christ as King is as unnatural. We all ought to strive to leave cool, unemotional recognition of Christ behind us. And we all ought to burn hot with love and affection for Christ Jesus. In view of Christ's glory as King, we all ought to be at least, at least as worshipful as these disciples were here in Luke 19 who were quite ready to throw down even their own clothes on the ground in front of Jesus' donkey as Jesus, the glorious King, entered Jerusalem. Jesus did not find the praise of the crowds excessive or inappropriate. In fact, Jesus said to the Pharisees, and this brings us to our last point, that if these disciples were silent, the very stones would cry out. In saying this, Jesus is teaching us that His glory is ultimately irrepressible. If no one were to notice the glory of the King at that moment, even the stones would have cried out. Matthew Henry says that the force of Jesus' words are as follows. Whether men praise Christ or no, He will and shall be praised. Now there was a time, and there is a time, even presently, where Christ's glory is obscured. There was and is even now a time when the truth about Christ may be suppressed. But when Jesus revealed Himself openly on that day, on His way into Jerusalem, when Jesus gave the crowds a glimpse of His kingly glory, it was impossible at that time for His glory to go unnoticed. And when Jesus reveals Himself again in the end, it will be impossible for His glory to go unnoticed. The Bible teaches that Jesus will return from heaven where He has been since His resurrection and His ascension. And at that time, He will judge the living and the dead and He will live forever with those who have trusted in Him. Listen to Revelation 1.7 speaking of that event. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him. Every eye, every eye will see Him. (coughs) Even those who pierced Him. 
and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, amen. Listen now to Philippians 2, 9 and 10. God has exalted Him, Jesus, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every eye will see Him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is King. Lord. This does not mean that all people will eventually be saved. This just means that eventually everyone, every single person who has ever lived from the beginning of time until now, every single person will see the truth. Either the truth that they embraced or the truth that they suppressed. That Jesus Christ is glorious. Either the truth that was the basis of their salvation or the truth that is the basis of their condemnation. Jesus Christ is glorious. What will it be for you in the end? Will the revelation of the glory of Christ be a shocking and terrifying reality check on that last day as you plummet into hell, having suppressed this truth throughout the whole of your earthly life? Or will the revealed glory of Christ be the fulfillment of the deepest longings of your heart and the consummation of your joy? Have you seen already something of the glory of King Jesus and have you trusted in Him to deliver you from the enemies of sin and death? And are you now waiting for the fullness of that redemption when all things shall be made new? When there will be no more mourning, no more sickness, no more sadness, no more crying. For the former things will have passed away. And the revelation of the glory of Jesus will be a welcome event. Or do you now mock King Jesus and refuse to bow before Him in adoration and trust, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness? Some people think that Christianity is like a bit of dust in the corner of a room or on an otherwise clean coffee table or bookshelf. Something that needs to be dealt with. Wiped away. Some people think of Christianity as a fly in the ointment, an ant in a boiled kettle of water, a little stain on a pair of jeans, a run in a pair of tights, a hole in a shoe. Some people think of Christianity as something like this. Some people think of Christians, Christians' obsession with Jesus and His glory as an inconvenient blemish upon human history. And the sooner that we clean up this mess, the better. 
the sooner that Christians are enlightened and come to embrace a more progressive worldview, the better. But Jesus' words in Luke 19.40 indicate just the opposite. That this creation was made to worship. Every person was made to worship. And worship it shall. It is not Christian belief, but rather it is unbelief, which is the blemish on human history. And one day all shall be forced to believe and to bow as Christ stands before their very eyes and as they give an account to Him for their lives. The point that Jesus makes in Luke 19.40 and the point that I want to drive home here in conclusion is that the glory of Jesus is ultimately irrepressible. Just as you could not ultimately keep the light of the sun hidden, nor the cold of winter in a place like Canada, neither can the glory of Jesus ultimately be kept hidden. Just as a person with a severe allergy cannot simply suppress an allergic reaction, just as a person with a cough cannot simply suppress his cough and cease from coughing entirely, so you cannot just avoid seeing the glory of Jesus. On the last day, Jesus will reveal His glory in a similar fashion as He did at that triumphal entry. People will see Him acting as King, reigning as King. And just as it was then, (coughs) where Jesus said, if these keep silent, even the stones would cry out. On that day, He just had to be praised. And on that future day, Jesus will just have to be praised. On that day, the coming day of His return, we will see Him in His resurrected, ascending, ascended, and reigning state. And we will see His glory. It will just have to be seen. Every eye will see Him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the glorious King. On that day, even if you don't understand exactly what I mean now, you will understand that the glory of Jesus is ultimately irrepressible.